Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, July 29, 2014. Coming up, we'll hear about our own Joel Parker and the space talk he's giving tomorrow night at the Denver Science Museum. This is going to be the first time a spacecraft will rendezvous with the comet and fly along with it for a long time. And we'll examine the latest clues about mood disorders, including autism, by looking inside the gut. I would venture to say that if a person, let's say, ate a food that was slightly irritating and resulted in permeability... We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. The ongoing bad news about the parched Colorado River Basin just got worse. A new study reveals that the underground aquifers which feed the basin are drying up even faster than the surface waters. The Colorado River Basin spans seven states. It supplies water for 40 million people, 4 million acres of crops, and the nation's largest reservoir, Lake Mead. During the last decade, droughts and growing human demands have dropped the region's surface waters to historic lows. Some experts have worried that aquifers might be in trouble as well. The new study shows they were right. The effects of pumping water from aquifers is worse than most people feared. 75% of the Colorado River Basin water loss has been from underground reserves. If that water had not been lost, it could have filled Lake Mead two times. And it's not clear whether the aquifers have much reserve left. The researchers say their findings make water conservation more urgent than ever. Boulder's National Institute of Atmospheric Research supplied information for the study, which has been accepted for publication in the journal Geophysical Research Letters. Now for you athletes. When it's hot, heat stroke may be 10 times more likely than heart disease to threaten an endurance runner's life. That's according to a study published yesterday in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. To find this out, Israeli researchers reviewed data on all deaths and urgent hospitalizations at 14 popular endurance races in Tel Aviv from 2007 to 2013. An endurance race is basically anything over 6.2 miles. Out of 150,000 runners in these events, the most common emergencies involve the heart or heat. That said, heart problems only hit two runners. Both were released as nothing life-threatening. Heat stroke hit 21 runners. Two died. Twelve nearly died. To reduce the risk of heart stroke, the Israeli scientists offer three suggestions— One, when racing in a warm climate, go there, then wait two weeks before running hard. Two, if you're sick or recently had a fever, don't run hard. Three, urge the sports industry to provide better ways to monitor body core temperature during exercise. And, as you may have heard on KGNU's Morning Magazine, you can join Alternative Radio's award-winning journalist David Barsamian at Boulder's Trident Cafe for a free lecture on an important aspect of science. The topic, the environment, saving the future. That's tonight. David Barsamian's lecture begins at 7.30. You're tuned to How on Earth. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. Another special event this week happens tomorrow, 
when How on Earth's executive producer, Joel Parker, will give a talk at the Denver Museum of Science. When he's not guiding the ship here at How on Earth, Joel is a director at the Southwest Research Institute's Boulder office. He's also part of the Rosetta mission. Specifically, he's the deputy principal investigator on the ALICE instrument. Soon, ALICE will analyze gas coming off of a distant comet to figure out just what the comet is made of. For more about tomorrow's talk, here's Joel Parker. The Denver Museum of Nature and Science has a series, a monthly series, called 60 Minutes in Space. And I will be having 30 of those minutes talking about what's coming up and what has happened recently on the Rosetta Project. Can you give us an update on just what Rosetta is all about? So Rosetta is a mission run by the European Space Agency in partnership with NASA to go to a comet. And unlike other missions that have flown by comets, this is going to be the first time a spacecraft will rendezvous with the comet and fly along with it for a long time, for on the order of a year and a half. And in addition to that, Rosetta has a separate lander that is going to land on the comet to study the surface of the comet in person. Now, this comet, if I recall, is kind of a slushy snowball, is less than five miles long. That is correct. The diameter of the comet is roughly four kilometers, although it's hard to say diameter exactly because the shape of the comet is extremely unusual. It doesn't look like a snowball or even a lumpy potato. It actually looks like it has two different parts that are stuck together, one that's somewhat roundish, another that's more flat. We call it a contact binary. This was a surprise. We did not know the shape in this detail, of course, until we got there. We officially arrive at the comet and start orbiting it in August. The arrival date is August 6th. But we already have had long-range images of the comet that show this very unusual shape. I'm picturing two snowballs smooshed together, not smooshed very hard. Looks a little bit like a dumbbell. That's a very good visualization. It is like you took two snowballs and stuck them together so they froze together, but you didn't squish them. So they still look like two separate pieces with a little neck or a waist that's kind of frozen holding them together. Rosetta launched in 2004, so it's actually been chasing the comet for over 10 years. It took that long because the comet is in a very elliptical orbit. It goes out as far as Jupiter and comes in just a little bit further than the Earth is from the Sun. So it took three flybys of Earth and one flyby of Mars to get Rosetta into an orbit that matches the comet. Ten years for us to finally get there. And you're going to give a talk about this just before the arrival. That's correct. At the Denver Museum of Nature and Science this Wednesday, starting at 7 o'clock in the planetarium, the Gates Planetarium, it's a show called 60 Minutes in Space. I will be one of the speakers talking about Rosetta, past, present, and future. That's How on Earth's executive producer, Joel Parker. He'll give that talk about his day job involving the Rosetta mission tomorrow night at 7 in Denver at the Science Museum. 
Coming up next, we'll share news about how gut microbes might affect mood disorders, including the anxiety that's common with autism. So stay tuned to KGNU, the science show. How on earth? The neurodevelopmental condition known as autism comes with a grab bag of gifts and struggles. For some people, autism brings a remarkable ability to handle complex tasks in language, math, and problem solving. But autism can also make some social activities, such as making friends or trying something new, very challenging. During the past 50 years, the number of children diagnosed with some type of autism has skyrocketed. To learn why, some scientists are focusing on a surprising link between behavior and physical health, specifically the health of the digestive system, especially the tiny one-celled microbes that have evolved to live inside the human gut. (laughs) Students at the Temple Granted School in Boulder are typical teenagers. They like to have fun. They also know they are somewhat unusual due to a condition shared with many creative thinkers, including physicist Albert Einstein, filmmaker Stanley Kubrick, and the namesake of this school, scientist Temple Grandin. 14-year-old student Parker says he sees mostly benefits from being autistic. Interesting thought process and problem solving, so creative ways to solve problems versus just your, your average person might just come up with basic ways to solve problems. But autism does have drawbacks. Socially, it's kind of harder to, you know, be, to like talk to people and such, you know, generally speaking. People with autism are also more prone to something seemingly unrelated to emotions, digestive upsets. Parker says his health improved when he gave up milk and wheat. Then something else improved, his mood. I think I definitely got a little less grumpy all the time and less, like, rigid and argumentative. Yeah, I think it definitely... um definitely changed how, like, mood-wise and and neurologically-wise how I functioned in life. His classmate, Russell, suspects that Parker's food choices affected the bacteria and other microbes that live inside the human digestive tract. Per cell count, you've got more bacteria in you and on you than you do cells. You want diversity in your gut, a lot of different things uh, digesting your food for you. The human digestive tract is home to trillions of microbes, and a growing number of studies indicate that promoting friendly gut microbes like Bacteroides fragilis might be good. What we've shown is that Bacteroides fragilis uh, improves anxiety-like behavior, it improves repetitive behavior, it improves communication in the mouse models. California Institute of Technology scientist Sarkis Masmanian says feeding the microbe to mice, specially bred to exhibit autistic disorders, improved their digestive health, and virtually eliminated their anxiety. He says there are far-reaching implications for humans. Very speculative, probably very controversial, that um, at least in a subset of autistic subjects, perhaps autism isn't solely a disease of the brain, but perhaps that the uh, issues in the gut are contributing to autistic behavior. And if you can address the, the gastrointestinal symptoms, that you could have improvements in behavior. The Centers for Disease Control reports in the United States autism rates have nearly tripled since the year 2000, 
with severe forms leading to complete withdrawal from social contact, profound mental retardation, and overwhelming anxiety. As for how to bridge the gap between research in animals and results in humans, researchers at Arizona State University hold another piece of the puzzle. Rosa Krosmanik-Brown's lab has documented that children with autism tend to have a less diverse population of gut microbes than a typical child. Most of the people that were doing research looking for microbes in the intestines of kids with autism were looking for pathogens. We were not looking for pathogens. We were looking to see if these kids um, that are diagnosed in the spectrum are missing good microbes. And that's what we found. One of the many missing microbes is Prevotella, which may keep bad bugs from becoming bullies. Our hypothesis is that it's a lack of beneficial bacteria, which makes you vulnerable to pathogenic bacteria. James Adams directs the school's Autism Asperger's Research Program. He says the autism epidemic may have roots in the many ways modern life harms a healthy gut community. Too many processed foods, pesticides, plus a high use of antibiotics in livestock and in kids. We've published several studies showing that one of the major differences in medical histories of children with autism is that they've received two to three times as many oral antibiotics as typical children. All these researchers agree there is much more to solving the puzzle linking digestion, microbes, and autism, but they believe they are on a promising path, and their discoveries might also help with other mood disorders, including depression and schizophrenia. You're tuned to KGNU Science Show, How on Earth. I'm Shelley Schlender. If you'd like to hear extended interviews with these experts on autism and the microbiome, please contact us, and we'll look into posting some of those interviews at our website, howonearthradio.org. Right now, we have a bit of room to share an excerpt from one of those longer interviews. So here now is Caltech scientist Sarkis Masmanian. He's the scientist who published that groundbreaking study earlier this year, demonstrating that giving autistic mice Bacteroides fragilis virtually eliminated most autistic behavior in those mice. In this extended interview excerpt, we're talking with Masmanian about whether a person can have a leaky gut without noticing any symptoms of that leaky gut. Let's listen in. I would venture to say that if a person, let's say, ate a food that was slightly irritating and resulted in permeability of the intestine or leaky gut, that there might not be any symptoms that that person would associate with the outcome. In other words, there doesn't necessarily need to be any bloating or cramping or constipation that is linked to leaky gut. Leaky gut may occur in ways that are asymptomatic to us, you know, in terms of our feelings. But at the same time, leaky gut, while we're not realizing it's occurring, may result in the leakage of small molecules into the circulation that are affecting our mood, that are affecting our behavior. But we just don't understand it. We just don't realize it's happening. But you can measure it. You can measure it if you look, right? But then without symptoms, I don't think that modern medicine is at the point taking the step to measure metabolites unless there's a reason to measure them under various different conditions. So, for example, if a person is going through a bout of anxiety, 
I doubt that there are people out there looking at their intestine while they have anxiety or looking at their metabolites while they have anxiety. I just don't think the field has, has advanced to that point yet. But I would venture to guess that it's not implausible that there are asymptomatic issues in the gut that lead to changes in behavior through metabolites. It may be occurring all the time for all we know. We've just never measured it. We've just never looked. And by we, I mean the scientific and medical community. And we're in this wildly amazing time where we can start to measure these things. And it doesn't quite make sense what it all means yet, but we can start looking. We can start making measurements. We can start making correlations between various symptoms and microbiological or metabolomic profiles. But at the end of the day, one needs to go beyond just, you know, cause and effect relationships and really get into mechanism. You know, the counter-argument is perhaps a person feels anxiety and that anxiety changes their microbiome and changes their metabolome. So the anxiety was not caused by those changes. But the counter-argument, once again, is that perhaps the food you ate changed your microbiome and then changed your metabolome and then caused the anxiety. And we still don't know which direction the relationship goes. And in fact, I want to make sure that we caution the audience to realize that the link between gut microbes and anxiety is still tenuous. There are a few encouraging reports, but a lot of research still needs to be done before we can ever say that there is a bona fide link between the gut or gut microbes and mood, emotions, behavior. Well, and let's go right to the center of that. Bacteroides fragilis, that star microbe that you gave to the mice that healed their leaky gut, just because it made a significant improvement in the mice is it something that is strongly likely to help humans? I think there's a possibility that treatment of people with anxiety or even autistic behaviors with bacteria fragilis may show benefits. But at this point, we've only done the research in mice. We need to be very careful in terms of extrapolating that data to humans. The way this would be done is through well-controlled clinical trials, where we can assess not just safety but efficacy in a way that we can draw very strong conclusions. Mouse models are a great place to start because they allow us to do these experiments, they allow us to generate hypotheses, but many, many therapies that have worked in mice have failed in humans. And so we really need to be cautious of believing that this is going to work in humans or even strongly suggesting that they're going to work in humans. I think that there is a very strong likelihood that what we found in mice may never translate to humans. But then again, we won't know until we do the studies, until we do the trials. We're committed to marshalling the resources to do those trials. How are autistic parents responding to your study? We've received, and once again, bear in mind that all of our work has been done in animal models and mouse models but we've received tremendous feedback from the public in terms of enthusiasm about our research. And so I think that people are hopeful. I want to make sure that we caution the public in terms of the scientific process of how one would develop a viable therapy. It's a long road. We need to validate safety, which is key, in addition to efficacy. And I think that the community is ready for these types of therapies. Um, But we want to make sure that we're uh, smart about this, that we're careful about this, that we're responsible about how we develop this therapy. And the way we'll do this is through well-controlled studies 
that will hopefully ultimately show us efficacy but validate safety. And so the last thing we would want to do is to rush the process and start giving microbial treatments to autistic subjects that the mouse studies tell us would be effective, but then we see various different outcomes and maybe potentially even negative outcomes in humans. It's not something we're going to do. We're going to be very, very careful and responsible in how we develop this therapy. Can you imagine a lot of parents rushing to the grocery store to buy out the probiotics and hope that they'll do as well as that very delicate one that you used. If parents go and use commercially available probiotics and they see benefits, then I think that's terrific. There is very little evidence that commercially available probiotics are harmful, at least in healthy people. Perhaps they won't be harmful in a vulnerable population, such as autistic children. In fact, I know anecdotally that many parents do give probiotics to their autistic children, and some do see benefits. Whether they're real or not remains to be seen because you need controlled clinical studies for this. But there's no reason that I can think of for not at least trying to use commercially available probiotics. But these are organisms that haven't been validated in clinical trials. They may or may not work. And so I think there is still a a note of caution there as well. Our guts are anaerobic and The shelves of your refrigerator are in oxygen, and those microbes have to have long shelf life. So the commercially available probiotics were mostly developed in the 50s and 60s based on the fact that they had a long shelf life. And it's not surprising that there are gram-positives, and gram-positive bacteria are very hardy. They have a very thick cell wall or envelope around them, and therefore it's not surprising that the organisms that were isolated that have a long shelf life were gram-positive organisms. They almost all come from dairy products and not from the human gut. And so there is probably reason to believe that they don't interact with our immune system in the ways that microbes that evolved in the gut would. Our hope is that eventually we would add to the existing probiotics with new organisms that have a strong foundation in research that are clinically validated to have efficacy and come from the human gut because those organisms are much more likely to interact with our immune cells, with our nervous system, in ways that organisms derived from dairy products would not. That's Caltech scientist Sarkis Masmanian talking about how microbes that help the gut and its health may also help with mood disorders. If you'd like to hear extended interviews with these experts on autism and the microbiome, please contact us, and we'll look into posting some of those interviews at our website, howonearthradio.org. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Mr. Scruff's Friendly Bacteria. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes and extended interviews. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. Experiment and